Thank you for worshiping with us at City Church this morning. My name is Sarah Bugby, and I will be reading our scripture for today. As you make your way back to your seats, you can turn in your Bibles or pull up on your devices. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And as we prepare our hearts to hear God's word, let us pray together. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find wisdom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Hear the word of the Lord from Hebrews. Therefore, we must pay pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by grace, the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Well, good morning again. Thank you, Sarah. Um, My name is Justin. I'm a pastor here. It's really great to be with you on this Lord's Day. Uh, As we get going here, I want to kind of tell you a story. I'm not going to use real names because I know these people, but I have some friends uh, who several years ago kind of, they they took a, a weekday off and they decided to go on a long hike. So they went down to the Ozarks and it was supposed to be like a you know, a good hike, like a good half-day hike, 10 miles, something like that. And so they, they only brought water in their phones, right? Like, you know, they're experienced, new trail, it's going to be fun, take most of the day, they were looking forward to it. But you can kind of guess where this is going. Somewhere very early in the hike, they missed a trail marker, and so spent several hours just without knowing it, blazing their own trail, going way off. But because they expected it to be a long hike, it took a long time for them to realize that something had gone wrong. So they didn't realize they were lost until much later, at which point they had become very lost. You ever felt that, right? Like the difference between like, oh, I'm not sure where I am, and knowing that you are very lost, no. Yeah, just, just me and Owen, um, right? But they had no cell service, so they were, they were in real trouble. 
And by the grace of God, they were able to make it out of the woods uh, to a road, not like back to their car. They never refound the trail, but they made it uh, back to a road and eventually walked down the road to find their car. And their five-hour hike took upwards of 10 hours and was, you know, they were in significant danger for, for some time there. And what they needed was some practice in orienteering, which is a navigational skill of using a map and compass to chart a course through challenging terrain to make sure you're always headed towards your destination. Right? If you're just going, you know, if you're going from here to mayo ketchup for lunch, you don't really need a map, right? Like you can go out these doors and you can see it and walk two blocks toward it and get there. But if you are... Uh, trying to go through hilly and wooded terrain, if, you know, there's rocks and trees and boulders and, and, and big hills and plateaus and things you've got to go around, well, it's really easy to get off course and not be able to find your bearing again. And if the trek is a long one, you know, one little degree off can land you miles from your intended destination by the time you go as far as you plan to go. And sometimes our spiritual lives can feel like that, can't they? Right? Like we start out following God, listening to his voice and his word, walking by faith and trusting that God's ways are right, even when they're hard or countercultural. But the terrain is rocky and there are a lot of obstacles and distractions. It's, it's really easy to be going along for a while and find out that we're not where we expected to be, to feel that God is distant, that life isn't what we thought, to wonder if, you know, God, does God really love us? Is He really paying attention? Is He there? Is His word trustworthy? So we need a compass and a map. We need some waypoints and markers to help us stay on course. And so did the original hearers of the sermon that makes up the New Testament book of Hebrews. They were Jewish Christians in the first century, probably living in or around Italy, and they were under pressure to deny Christ. Both cultural pressure from the pagan Roman world in which they worked and lived, and relational pressure from their families of origin who had not accepted Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, and so opposed their new life living in God's ways under the new covenant of grace. They were experiencing pressure to walk away from Christ, both from family and from the culture at large. And those are two powerful influences. They're powerful influences for us, too, aren't they? Maybe you can relate. Or if it's not a family or culture, maybe for you it's something else. Politics addiction, material things, financial security. In our text today, the author of Hebrews gives a powerful encouragement to stay the course with Jesus, which is something that we need to hear too. Last week, we started to hear about how Jesus is better than anything else we might put our trust in, how the better we know him, the stronger our faith will be. This week, these first nine verses of chapter 2 continue that theme by taking the high view of Jesus of chapter 1 and beginning to help us see how that matters in everyday life. And here's the big idea. Because Jesus is Lord, 
we must stay anchored in the gospel. But how do we do that? Well, uh, first Hebrews says to us, wake up. Wake up. You're drifting. Look with me again at the first verse. Here's what it says. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now, it's always fun when a passage starts with the word, therefore, because then we have to figure out what it's there for, right? Like what, what it's referencing, what we're supposed to be remembering. In this case, it's specifically the claim that starts the book that then, you know, the rest of chapter 1 unpacks and substantiates. But Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, this is what it's there for. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So what's it there for? Well, since God has spoken to us, first by the prophets, which is probably kind of like a, a catch-all term for the Old Testament. And now, through the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who came to earth, lived a perfect life, died as a perfect sacrifice for the sins of his people, and rose again, now seated in victory at the right hand of the Father. Or even shorter, we could say it this way, Jesus is Lord. Then, therefore, since God has spoken, since Jesus is Lord... We must respond. The writer of Hebrews gives us two therefore commands here, which are kind of actually part and parcel of the same thing, two sides of the same coin. First he says, pay attention to what we've heard, which, right, is God's word fulfilled in Jesus. And second, pay attention so we don't drift away from it. And that's an interesting word, drifting we're uh, here in Missouri, we're mostly landlocked, so we don't often think in nautical terms unless you are a riverman or river woman, floating barges down to the confluence. You know, I don't know. We don't, we don't think about these things very often because we don't live by the ocean. But if you did, right, drifting would mean something really concrete to you because if you're in a boat, Drifting is what happens when you just get, you haven't done anything. You're not rowing. You haven't put up sails. You're not intending to go anywhere. Just the current pushes you away from where you are. You don't notice it, or at least not right away, until you look up at the horizon and see, oh, I'm not where I was. I'm not where I expect to be. I've drifted. You can move a, a really far distance without even noticing it when you're, all you really feel are like the gentle waves underneath you. And the writer of Hebrews is saying that if we neglect who Jesus is and what he's done, we'll find ourselves floating away from the truth, which we mustn't do because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Right? The stakes are high. And the Jewish Christians in the first century were being pushed out to sea 
by cultural compromise and religious ostracism. And today, Christians are in danger of being slowly carried off by the currents of individualism, of sexual identity and personal autonomy, of pleasure-seeking and self-help and self-fulfillment, of materialism and respectability, of craving acceptance and affirmation, of right-wing politics, of left-wing politics. So many currents pushing our little boats around. And Hebrews says to us, wake up, you're drifting. We must pay attention to what we've heard. And what stops a boat from drifting? An anchor. We need to be anchored in the truth of God's word. But does it really matter what we believe and how we live it out? Right? Isn't it enough just that we believe? Do we really need to have our whole lives submitted to what God's word says? Right? I mean, what, what's the big deal if I underreport my taxes in a couple months? Right? Is it, is it really stealing if I don't think the government uh, should be taxing me in the first place? Right? Besides, I'll have more to give to the church if I don't give so much to Big Brother. <laughs> so what if I drink a bit too much from time to time, right? Like, everybody's got to let their hair down, relax now and then. It's no big deal. Right? Does, does God really care if I sleep with someone I'm not married to? Or, or view pornography or define my sexuality based not on my embodied reality, but on my impulses and desires? I mean... God made the body for pleasure. Surely he's not interested in like the, the minutia of how I go about pursuing that. Right? As long as I'm a good and kind and generous person, we're good. Right? Who really cares if I ignore my neighbors or ghost my community group at church or phone it in with my friends or spouse or kids? Right? Like living for others is exhausting. And I'm tired. It's been a long week. I need some me time. I deserve it. Some self-care. And I've got so much to binge watch. You know, so much new content just dropped. They won't miss me if I don't show up. No big deal. Does God really care? Maybe the Christians in the first century were, were thinking, you know, not about Netflix necessarily, but kind of thinking the same kind of things. Right? Can I be right with God and also go with the flow with my Roman neighbors and my Jewish family? Maybe we're tempted to think along the same lines, right? Like, can I follow Jesus and do my own thing? Why do we have to get the Bible all involved here? We've got to wake up. We're drifting. Now, you might be thinking I'm being a bit legalistic here. A bit too focused on sin and not enough on grace. But here's the thing. All the ways that we drift, all the ways we drift into disobedience and rebellion, all the ways that we kind of drift in our thoughts and attitudes and actions, well, they reveal where we're looking for salvation, where we're looking for health and wholeness outside of God. And just kind of as a, uh, a reminder 
grown-ups, if you want to think more about that very topic, about what our hearts say about where we're looking for salvation, that's what uh, we're talking about in adult Sunday school right now. And you can show up at 9 over, come in this way around an LPA, and uh, dig deeper into that thought. Right? But, but you, the, the, the tax cheat, right, he's not just greedy, he's looking for health and wholeness in his bank account. Right? The overindulger is looking for safety in oblivion and forgetting her troubles. The hedonist is looking for meaning in bodily pleasure. The, the Netflix shut-in is looking for insulation and security in entertainment. Right? And I could go on, and probably you could too. Maybe none of those is where you're tempted to look. Right? I just gave some common examples, but maybe that's not it for you. Right? Maybe for you it's something even more everyday and seemingly acceptable. Right? Your marriage, your kids, that vacation you've been dreaming of, good grades, cushy retirement. See, when we're drifting from God's ways, it shows us that we've stopped paying attention to who God is. That we're in danger of trying to remake God in our own image instead of looking to Him as the only true source of life and light, and peace, and hope, and security, and fulfillment. If God is who he says he is, if Jesus is Lord, then he is the one who gets to say how life works best. And the good news is just what Hebrews 1 proclaimed to us. Even though we have rejected God and his ways, Jesus has come to bring us back into a life that is full and complete back into relationship with God by grace through faith in his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus is better than anything else we could put our trust in. He's better than anywhere else we could look to find fulfillment. So it's not so much about the ways we sin, but the ways we look for salvation. And God has shown us first in the Old Testament and now in Jesus that the only place to find it is with God himself. And he will hold us accountable if we neglect this only true salvation in Jesus. Now, this is the first of five warning passages in Hebrews. And on first reading, right, like this maybe have just stuck with you. You, you, you might be just like feeling the heat of the, this kind of warning it's just, wait, it's going to get hotter, right? But, but starting, out, starting out slow, right? But, but warnings like this kind of raise the question, right? Is he, is he talking about a Christian losing his salvation? Is this drifting, someone drifting out of being saved? And when we come to thorny questions like this, we need to employ our rule of faith, which is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So, so let's do that. Let's look at a couple of scriptures about that, right? Let's look at John 10, verses 27 to 29, where Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Or uh, what about... 
Romans 8, the end of Romans 8, which we just looked at in our Advent series, where Paul writes, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's just two but just even from, from just two out of a potentially very long list of Scripture, what, what does Scripture say? What, if we let Scripture interpret Scripture, uh, what, we, what we find in, in Hebrews isn't about Christians losing their salvation. But if it's not about that, then what is it about? Well, I'd like to offer two things. First, I think it's a warning to people who have accepted church but not actually embrace Jesus from the heart, right? This isn't people who uh, love Jesus but still struggle with sin or doubts. These are folks that are more into the community or benefits of the local church, which are wonderful, but they're not really all that committed to Jesus himself. Remember Jesus' parable of the four soils. Some folks are that rocky soil, They're not about the gospel rooting deep into their hearts. Now, let me say, City Church is great. Our community is wonderful. But City Church is going to be a very poor Savior. And the warning of Hebrews is saying, don't neglect the offer of salvation in the place where you find it. Jesus is better. But second, I think this is also a warning to genuine Christians not to neglect the beautiful salvation that is already ours in Christ. Not to despise or forget, even by accident in the midst of the busyness of life, the glory and wonder of the good news of Jesus. Not to give in to lethargy or apathy in our walk with God. Not to put our ultimate trust in anything other than God's promises to us in the gospel. But how can we trust the message of the gospel? What signposts, what what map and compass help us to orient ourselves rightly to the truth? Well, Hebrews 2 continues, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Right? How can we trust the message of the gospel? Well, because God has spoken to us. God revealed himself in the Law and Prophets or, you know, the Old Testament, right? That's, that's what the, the author of Hebrews means when he says the message declared by angels. And this revelation was a trustworthy guide to peace with God and life lived according to his purpose. Now he has revealed himself directly in Jesus, right? How much more trustworthy a guide could you get? But just in case... Here's how we know God is speaking to us in Jesus, who is Lord of all. Jesus himself declared it, right? Verse 3, the eyewitnesses attested to it, 
also verse 3, which we have preserved for us in the New Testament. And verse 4, the Holy Spirit bore witness by signs, wonders, and miracles. Right? It's not some, the, the truth of the gospel isn't some just like my heart thing. It's public. God has spoken, and He has attested, and He has borne witness. The gospel is trustworthy, and it is true. We need to stay anchored in it, or we'll drift. C.S. Lewis said it this way in Mere Christianity, we have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in your mind. It must be fed and as a matter of fact, if you examined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? In other words, continually submitting every area of life to the Lordship of Christ, well, it takes real work. I often listen to the... Uh, I guess, I guess here, nerd alert, but I often listen to the BBC radio show. It's been going for decades and decades, but now it's a podcast, which is how I get to listen to it because I don't have like a big enough antenna to catch the BBC at my house, um, right? But it's called In Our Time with Melvin Bragg. Anybody else? Anyone? You guys are missing out. It's really good. So Melvin Bragg is this sweet old man and right like... Every episode, you can kind of, you hear him getting older, which is delightful. And he just picks a topic. It, and it's always like a deep dive into something very specific, like from, from, from history or literature or art uh, or science, like what actually is happening when an electron moves or, uh, you know, Beowulf based on a true story, you know, like, like deep dives into something that you've never, usually never even heard of. And then he gets three experts, three like university professors who have studied this obscure, crazy thing, and they talk about it for an hour. It's awesome. I recommend it. And a couple weeks ago, uh, he had three folks on, and they were talking about the 19th century oceanographic Challenger ex Expedition. Has anybody ever heard of the Challenger Expedition? This is a picture of uh, the, the HMS Challenger. I'd never heard of it before, but it was kind of the first ever major ocean exploration. Right? Over, they traveled around the world over the course of four years, measuring things that they had not ever been able to measure before. The depth of the ocean, uh, the temperatures at different depths, currents, the composition of the, the ocean floor, right? Things like this. In the process, they not only found what we still believe to be the deepest part of the ocean, which they call the Challenger Deep, named after this boat, but they also discovered 4,700 new marine species, I think a couple of like new metals, just like crazy stuff. Scientists today are still, they brought back so much stuff. It's stored in Scotland. They're still like pulling samples out and studying them today, right? And it was 150 years ago. It's pretty amazing. Now, to do the work, they needed the ship to remain in the same place for extended periods of time, right? So they could take these really precise measurements. 
or they needed the ship to be able to move in one direction and one direction only very slowly but powerfully so they could dredge the surface, the floor of the ocean to pull this stuff up, right? And both of these things are things that ships up to that point could not do, right? But there's a reason that they had never done anything like this before uh, because sailing ships can't do that, right? And you can see this is a sailing ship, but you see that steam, steam stack in the middle, right? Like that's what made this whole thing possible. It had a, it normally went around by sail, but when it came time to do this science, they would take down the sails and they would fire up the steam engine that would allow them to hold their position or would let them move in one direction, albeit very slowly, right? And men would, when, they, when it came time to do this, men would spend all day, 12, 15 hours below decks, shoveling coal into a furnace to power the engine, right? It was a, a lot of hard work, but it was the only way they could stay on mission. It was the only way they could do what they were there to do. Right, and like the Challenger needed its steam engine to do its work, right, we need to feed the fires of our faith by soaking in the Word of God in order to experience the fullness and richness of life with God that is ours in Jesus. Right, we don't work to earn this great salvation, but because we already have it, because we have received it by grace through faith, we get to work it out into every area of life. Because Jesus is Lord, we must stay anchored in the gospel. But how do we do that? Well, I think what, we, what we've seen so far is that we do that by trusting God's word. That's our compass. That's our map that keeps us from going off course. But you may be thinking, right, like, well, I know a lot of Christians who know a lot about the Bible but man, are they mean, self-righteous, right? Like knowing the Bible hasn't really stopped them from being self-involved. Or maybe, right, like they know the Bible, but they're just like crushed, navel-gazing all the time. They feel condemned, right? And, and, and that's what happens when we forget that we're not on this trek alone, Right? See, we, we don't just need to wake up, we also need to look up to Jesus. We need to remember that the good news joins us to Him by grace through faith. You see, Jesus is our guide, right? He's hiked this trail before. He knows how the map and compass work. Look with me again at verses 5 through 9, which say this, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, what's going on here? Well, the author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 8 to show how Jesus has fulfilled God's intention for humanity 
and is restoring us to it. And I want to read Psalm 8. It's not a long psalm. I want to read it all so you can kind of hear the context. He quotes from the middle part, but you can hear the context of the glory of God and God's creational purpose for men and women. Listen, we'll start Psalm 8.1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. This is where uh, Hebrew starts to quote. And crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Which makes me think of the Challenger expedition. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In Psalm 8, King David marvels at the majesty of God's creation and the fact that human beings who are so small in the grand scheme of things are actually the pinnacle of creation, crowned with glory and honor and given dominion over all things so that through us, God could order and rule and develop the beauty of his creation. In thinking about human beings' dignity and purpose, Psalm 8 is reflecting on the creation account in Genesis, which I'll just point you to Genesis 1, 27 and 28, which kind of gives this recap. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. But the writer of Hebrews knows that something has gone wrong. King David is right. Human beings do still have beauty and dignity and purpose, but it's been warped and distorted by sin, corrupted by our rebellion against God. Because although our first parents had this amazing honor and responsibility, they threw it away in an attempt to be gods themselves which we talked about a couple uh, summers ago in the parking lot when we were in our Sword and Trial sermon series. Adam and Eve drifted from the truth God had told them and embraced a lie instead. Look with me at what happens when you get to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve rebel against God, and God says to them, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust." And to dust you shall return. Right? They're going to die. 
But remember what Hebrews 2.9 said. Remember what Hebrews 2.9 said that Jesus did. He tasted death for everyone. See, rejecting God and His ways does lead to death. That's why we need that great salvation from verse 3. Why drifting from the truth of Christ is so deadly. In going our own way, we're like orienteers going on a long trek who have just thrown away our compass and our map and star chart. We, we need to be restored. We, we need a new representative, a, a new head, a redo of what Adam messed up. And in applying Psalm 8 to Jesus, the author of Hebrews is showing us that this has come in Jesus. God put everything in subjection to Adam and Eve, and they rejected God to live for themselves. So Jesus, who, being very God, as we've learned, is far superior to the angels, well, he put on human flesh, being made for a little while lower than the angels, so that he could be the second Adam, a new paradigm of human life for us to inhabit instead of the paradigm of death that results from sin. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans 5, starting in verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And moving to verse 15, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ." You see, the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus are evidence of God's great love for us. He has done what we can't do for ourselves. He's perfectly followed God's intention for human life, fulfilling the requirement of the law. And, on the other hand, dying as, you know, dying the penalty for rebellion that our, our sins deserved, and doing that in our place so that we can receive the gift of restored relationship with God and everlasting life as a gift by grace. Only Jesus could do this. Only one who is both God and man could restore human beings to who he created us to be by bringing life out of death by bringing glory out of humiliation, by bringing grace out of judgment. So look up. The incarnation and resurrection are evidence that Jesus is better and that he is Lord. For everyone who has bent the knee to Jesus, who has placed their trust in him to save, you are no longer in Adam. You are no longer consigned to separation and death that comes from rebelling against God. No, 
You are in Christ, and you are destined to follow him through death into glory and full restoration. And in Christ, you get to once again inhabit the true purpose for human life here, to bring glory to God by using the authority and abilities he has given you to be fruitful and multiply, to extend and develop the beauty of God's creation, to give of yourself following the pattern of Christ for the good of others. After all, remember what Hebrews 1.18 said, those who are in Christ will inherit salvation. Because Jesus is Lord, we must stay anchored in the gospel. To stay anchored in the gospel, we need to wake up and trust God's word. And we need to look up to remember that we are in Christ so that we can trust God's work. And then awake and alert with our eyes fixed upon Christ, the unchangeable source of our salvation, establishing us in his life and leading us into what it means to be truly human, we can traverse the rocky terrain of this life on the way to the glory that awaits us when he makes all things new. Let's pray. Father, we do pray this morning. We pray uh, that wherever our hearts are, Lord, whether we are feeling encouraged by your gospel, whether uh, we haven't come quite to the encouragement but are still feeling the weight of sin, Lord, wherever we are, Lord, we ask that you would press the truth of the gospel deep into our hearts, that your promises are sure and they will come to pass. Lord, that you have done everything that we need to be restored to life, abundant life in you. Lord, help us now, we pray. Remind us of your gospel. Press it deep into our hearts so that it overflows, so that we can know and experience and rest in the goodness and the beauty of your saving grace right now and in the days that come after this one and this week. In the name of Jesus, we pray and by his power. Amen.